This is Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy, produced by Democracy International. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy. I'm David Detman. And I'm Evan Smith. And today we are joined by Eric Bjornland, president of Democracy International. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Well, let's just start off today by... um, kind of discussing what democracy assistance is. It's something we've all been involved with for a long time, and Eric, as kind of the founder of DI, has been involved with this uh, for even longer than the rest of us. And so from your perspective, Eric, kind of what is democracy assistance, democracy promotion, and kind of where does it come from? Well, it's interesting. Uh, many people have, have pointed out that the idea of democracy being an uh, important value of the United States goes way back to the beginning, to the to the founders and to the rhetoric of Abraham Lincoln and Woodrow Wilson making the world safer democracy. But it's interesting that the idea of democracy promotion has really changed in in recent years. Uh, Democracy promotion not that long ago, and in the minds of many people still, is mostly about what the U.S. government says or does, uh, what our rhetoric is, what our our policies and international organizations might be, uh, what our focus is in our relations with other countries. But at some point, not so long ago, we happened upon the idea that democracy promotion could also be democracy assistance, that it could be part of international development assistance, that it could be more technical and focused and, and, uh, and relevant to, to organizations and institutions in emerging and transitioning societies. And this, uh, this is really a different idea about what democracy promotion is. It's a quite young idea. It goes back only to... Uh, really, you could say maybe the 1980s when President Reagan made a speech about uh, the so-called evil empire of the Soviet Union, and in that speech he called for a new effort for the United States to build democracy around the world, and what came out of that was some experimentation that led to thinking about democracy promotion as actual development assistance. And I know uh, kind of a subset of democracy assistance, democracy promotion that you in particular are an expert in is election observation, which is maybe one of the flashiest aspects of of democracy assistance. You know, it's in the news when it happens. It's something that kind of governments are behind, although the kind of U.S. model of doing it is a little more kind of, you know, funding groups that are expert in in that uh, to to do those efforts. But before we kind of dig into that a little bit more, uh, why why is that, if people conceive of that kind of exercise of election observation as democracy assistance, why is that wrong? Well, election observation has gotten a lot of attention. It's, it's something that, uh, as you mentioned, many people um, are aware of. Um, election observers have their reports uh, get a lot of attention, uh, media attention and the like. Um, But it's important for all of us to remember that elections are uh, only a part of what's necessary to build a democracy. They're they're certainly a critical part, but but there are many, many other aspects of uh, building a meaningful democracy beyond elections, building successful uh, autonomous civil society, building good political parties, uh, ensuring respect for rule of law, effective governance, uh, and, and many other things. And the democracy assistance community has long been aware of that and tried to work across the board on, on all of these kinds of issues and, and many others. You wrote a book called Beyond Free and Fair, Monitoring Elections and Building Democracy. What does that title mean? How did you select that title? 
election observation emerged uh, over the last uh, couple of decades, really significantly in around 1990 and thereafter as a meaningful international activity. But there was a lot of focus on what were the reports of international observers. And, and the, the phrase that became the catchphrase of international election observation was whether an election was free and fair. And so much of the focus was on the, the short-term judgment of the relevant parts of the international community about whether an election in a controversial context or an emerging democracy should be accorded respect by the international community and by people within that country. That's an important judgment to make in, in many cases, and the contributions of international election observers are not insignificant in that respect. But it's not the most important question. The, the, the more important question is how is a society transitioning to democracy? What, what, what's happening uh, beyond elections and in a whole range of uh, areas of political organizing and of uh, organizational change? How can the international community uh, interact with that and support it? And one of the points I wanted to make was that um, international election observers and civil society groups uh, observing elections and engaging in political reform in their own countries need to not just think about elections uh, in and of themselves and not just think about making a judgment, but need to think about how the larger process is going. They need to think of elections in a broader context. They need to think of the larger democratization process. So I, I wanted to emphasize that by saying that it's beyond free and fair. So in, in, in an important initial sense, it's that election observation should not just focus on election day or just focus on a pass-fail judgment. And in, in a larger way, uh, I was also trying to make the point that democracy is beyond elections, that, that we need to move beyond just thinking about whether uh, there's a good election in a country, but whether there's respect for rule of law and human rights, whether there's inclusion of minorities and, and women and, and, and other disadvantaged people, um, whether civil society is active and engaged, and in general, whether uh, we're, we're all working to support democracy generally in, in another country. And, and so that's what I wanted to emphasize by that title. So Eric, you mentioned that democracy assistance as we practice it today was kind of an outgrowth uh, of, you know, kind of the foreign policy thinking of the 80s um, and kind of there was some institutional and kind of funding uh, uh, realities that, that were created then. Almost as an outgrowth of the Cold War. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but where are we today? Kind of, kind of walk us through how we got from that uh, kind of early focus or that, that kind of early institutional arrangement for, for kind of how this industry has evolved kind of to how it's expanded and, and then really become institutionalized as one of the um, important areas not just of kind of U.S. foreign policy or even the mission of USAID, which is you know, obviously the U.S. government's you know, primary development uh, institution, but, you know, um, uh, but kind of it's interwoven in, in U.S. foreign policy and development assistance now. So how do we get here? I think in the 1980s, democracy assistance was really experimental. It was very modest. They were effectively pilot programs and, and experimentation. And some of, those, uh, some of those programs seemed like they were doing something meaningful. And as we turned into the 1990s and as the world changed dramatically, as we had the fall of the Berlin Wall and the breakup of the Soviet Union 
and substantial people power revolutions in the Philippines and, and other places, uh, democracy transitions around the world, uh, it became increasingly, increasingly clear that uh, international organizations might be able to provide meaningful advice and, 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 and helpful pushes in the right direction in countries around the world. And, then, and so in the 1990s, this became increasingly institutionalized, and uh, the U.S. government started providing funding in more meaningful ways. There was uh, laws passed, the Support for Eastern European Democracy Act, the SEED Act, uh, enabled the United States to support democracy in the, in the newly democratizing countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, that was followed um, a year later by the Freedom Support Act, which allowed the U.S. to provide similar support in the former Soviet Union. And there was a sort of a blossoming of efforts to promote democracy around the world. Um, and it was true across the U.S. government. Different U.S. government agencies were interested in, in, in providing assistance that would help transitions uh, in other countries. Uh, in, the, in the 2000s, in the Bush administration, some of the new international development initiatives were, uh, some of the most important, were outside of USAID, which as you mentioned is the primary US government development agency. Um, some of those were not in, in democracy assistance. Um, the PEPFAR program that supported uh, AIDS relief was widely seen as a very successful interagency program, but not run out of USAID. Um, the Millennium Challenge Corporation had a new idea. President Bush uh, proposed a new idea about how to do international development assistance that was focused more on countries that were committed to doing the right thing and um, a more, part, more of a partnership between the United States and those countries and larger levels of funding and uh, greater autonomy on the countries deciding how that funding should be spent. Again, that was not done out of USAID, but created as a separate organization. And we had what are effectively democracy and governance programs uh, focused on particular regions, such as the Middle East Partnership Initiative that was run out of the State Department rather than USAID. And so the institutional arrangements became um, broader and, and more complicated. I think in, in our subfield of democracy, human rights, and governance, it's notable that the State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor became increasingly operational and started making grants to organizations, where in the past it had been principally a policy and advocacy bureau, it increasingly was an operational one. All of this became very confused in the 2000s, and there was an attempt to, uh, to try to have it be better coordinated out of the State Department and the creation of a new F Bureau, um, and there was a uh, increasing control over international development policy from the State Department. And I think many people in the development community have been concerned about that and concerned that um, we not allow short-term foreign policy objectives of the United States to drive decisions about development assistance more generally that uh, it can often be more effective with a longer-term perspective and, and more um, um, more attention to um, longer-term issues. So um, today we're still in the middle of those kinds of debates. Uh, the Obama administration um, restored a policy bureau at USAID and restored some of the important um, parts of USAID's decision-making and authority, 
but still in many respects continued the, um, the, the sort of trend of uh, the State Department being increasingly in charge of USAID programs and U.S. foreign policy considerations being some of the major ones in deciding that. And I think um, there's some concern about that in the democracy, human rights, and governance arena. I think we continue to think that um, some uh, independent organizations being involved in those decisions and some uh, greater focus on longer-term goals is essential to really being able to be on the side of people in other countries and be really able to do something meaningful to help them build democracies in their countries, which we do think is absolutely in the longer-term interests of the United States and of the global community. Um, but sometimes uh, decisions um, that are too short-term are not going to be the m most effective ones. So you mentioned the State Department and USAID. There is this, uh, you know, there has been an increasing move to have the State Department control USAID or move, as, as you mentioned. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by the short-term and long-term interests? Um, you know, I think just uh, so that our listeners can kind of understand there are these there are time horizons in what we're trying to accomplish with foreign policy and foreign assistance. So can you talk about sort of examples of short-term and, and examples of long-term imperatives? Well, for, foreign assistance is just one tool that the United States government has to try to promote uh, national interests around the world. And uh, there are many uh, important uh, concerns that U.S. foreign policy is focused on and should be focused on, uh, among them uh, the security of our country, the economic interests of our citizens and our companies, uh, the uh, very serious concerns that exist today about terrorism and extremism around the world, and the United States is actively working on those and many other issues, um, anything from nuclear proliferation to, um, uh, to, to trade. Um, but we have, as a country, uh, largely agreed over many years on a bipartisan basis that the United States national security would be enhanced and the, the, the world would be a safer place if more countries were more democratic. And um, that is something that is very important to focus on. Um, but transitions to meaningful democracy from more authoritarian uh, and situations or out of conflict um, are difficult. They're not always one way. Uh, and they're, they take time, uh, particularly for them to really become consolidated and entrenched. And so as supporters of those kinds of issues, we need to think in kind of longer term uh, ways about how to support transitions to democracy over time. It's important for us to remember that we can do both, that we can be concerned about uh, catching terrorists and prosecuting international criminals and protecting national security and um, preventing drug uh, and human trafficking and, and all kinds of other important issues while also uh, supporting democracy. And I think there's been times when our policymakers have acted like they needed to endorse uh, strongmen or authoritarian governments uh, in the short run for those kinds of interests and uh, have have lost their way a little bit about remembering the important values that we all believe in about democracy and human rights and participation and openness in other societies. And the democracy promotion community is um, 
here to remind them of the importance of those things and the long-standing bipartisan American consensus about the importance of those issues and how we as a country need to continue to support them. At the same time, uh, you recently wrote, uh, I guess, an open letter or an article that uh, basically said that we need a, a renaissance in democracy promotion. We need to kind of, as the, this industry who are, is, are committed to these values uh, that we think are imminently in kind of both the United States interest and kind of supportive of these, these kind of more you know, inherent values of, of kind of freedom, democracy, participation, accountability, all those things. Um, and yet, uh, kind of some of the tools, some of the approaches we've been using are more or less the same as they had were, you know, in the early days of, uh, of kind of this enterprise. And, um, you know, a, and you mentioned that a lot of these things, the, uh, kind of the, the ways we do democracy promotion were, you know, pilot projects or interesting ideas that people tried, and then they became institutionalized as, as the funding increased and as it became a bigger part of U.S. Uh, development policy. Um, what did you mean when you said uh, that we needed renaissance and democracy promotion, and, and how do you think that can play out? I think that uh, the democracy promotion community has, to some extent, become stuck in looking at the world the way it looked 20 years ago, and at, as you suggested in your comment, has continued to sort of operate the same way we operated in 1990 or 1995. And many of the challenges have changed. Uh, many of the, um, the threats to democracy, many of the authoritarians and, and others who um, have resisted the global movement to democracy have uh, adjusted their methods. They've, they've adapted to international pressures, to international assistance in democracy, and they've been able to um, to, to be more sophisticated in their resistance. They've been able to adopt the language of democracy of democracy and of good, fair elections and, and the like uh, without uh, really embracing the, the reality of it. And our, our community, the International Democracy Promotion Community, and these are many American organizations and activists, but also others in other parts of the world, uh, we haven't always been um, uh, quick to adapt to those new challenges, and we, we've, we've been somewhat um, stuck in the ways that uh, we, we used to operate in. I think, I think that's unfortunate, I think uh, it's important for us to, as a larger community, to continue to think creatively about what the new challenges are, to understand them better, and to, um, to continue to, um, to innovate, to continue to think about all kinds of things from uh, more effective uh, data-driven uh, information about whether our programs work and to think about what the real challenges to them are and to build um, coalitions and collaborate with, with local organizations, with international organizations around the world. And there are many things that we could do better than we are doing. Mm, our efforts have been valuable and have been useful and, and continuing to push the values of democracy and human rights that, as I've said, we think are universal values, is extremely important. But in order to genuinely be effective um, on a practical, technical level, uh, we've got to be much smarter about, about what we do in, in our programs. And I think maybe having a new administration in the United States is an opportunity for all of us to sort of rethink why we're doing these programs and what makes them work and look for you know, making sure that we're reinforcing the ones that are truly effective. 
So the the title of this podcast is uh, Opening Spaces, and it's uh, kind of an aspirational title and, and kind of to be opposite to what we see as a trend, you know, closing political space. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about, you know, the rise of new authoritarianism in the developing world, but also in, you know, in the rise of populist right-wing political parties in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, are you optimistic about, you were talking about sort of adapting to some of the challenges, do you feel optimistic about the, the trajectory of kind of increasing democracy and increasing open spaces, or are you feeling concerned? Well, I think uh, anybody who thinks about these issues has to be concerned about trends in the world. I think uh, many scholars and commentators have pointed out backlashes against democracy, um, backlashes against democracy assistance in particular. Uh, there's been um, backsliding in, in many places in the world, and, and certainly if we look at our the, the ratings of our friends from Freedom House and others, there's um, plenty of reasons to, to feel like uh, the democracy wave has not crashed over the whole world, that, that um, the continued growth of democracy and freedom around the world cannot be assumed or assured. Um, and as I've also suggested in, in, in this conversation, I think um, policy uh, needs to be smarter and, and, and um, the U.S. government and other governments need to continue to really support human rights and democracy around the world and, and not be distracted by the importance of other issues. So. Uh, certainly I'm concerned about the populist movements uh, that have um, led to elections of people that don't seem to support a lot of democratic values in many countries in the world. Um, certainly we're concerned about whether the new U.S. administration will be committed to democracy in, in our country and around the world. There's certainly a need for political reforms in the United States. And we need to continue to care about um, political reform in, in countries around the world, including in, in, in the richer, more developed countries. All right. Well, thank you, Eric, for joining us today. Thank you. It's fun to be here. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Democracy International.